Hello, and welcome to episode 36 of the Venture Games Podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, a venture partner at Griffin Gaming Partners, one of the leading gaming-focused VC firms, and content acquisition lead at Andreessen Back to Carry First, the leading African mobile games publisher. Today, I'm excited to introduce my next guest, Tim Morton, Production Director and CEO at Frost Giant Studios. Tim is a 30-year games industry veteran, and Frost Giant is a venture-backed studio looking to innovate in the real-time strategy or RTS genre. How's it going, Tim? It's going great. Thanks for having me on. Sure. Thanks for joining me. To kick things off, for those folks out there who are less familiar with you, do you mind just walking us through your background and the path that got you to where you are today? I'd be happy to. Yeah, I I started my career at Activision in 94, I guess, at the beginning of the year. So I'm, I'm just coming up on my my 30-year anniversary of, of being in the industry. But at, at that point in time, Activision was a much smaller company. Bobby had you know, bought the former assets and relocated everybody down to Los Angeles, which is where I joined uh, straight out of college. And, you know, he was kind of rebuilding Activision into what it has become today. But I spent about five years there. I had a chance to do a startup after that. That was a very educational experience. Mm -hmm. Also a game company. Then spent some time at Electronic Arts, at Sony Santa Monica, and finally Blizzard before... Mm -hmm getting to have this latest startup experience with Ross Giants. And I guess I would say I didn't start by working on real-time strategy games. I was just a fan of playing real-time strategy. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I did have an opportunity to work on RTS, first at Electronic Arts on the Command & Conquer series, you know, it's just exciting to get to work on a genre that you love to play. So since then... You know, I had a chance to also work on StarCraft II, StarCraft Remastered a little bit, and now to build a brand new RTS. So that's uh, been the journey so far. Awesome. And then when you were getting started, you know, the video game industry obviously has transformed so tremendously, and especially in recent years, right? Like it's just, it seems to be sort of accelerating. Back then, it was a very, very different industry. And so when you were getting started, did you imagine that gaming would get as large as it is today? Or was it more just an industry that you were really passionate about that you wanted to to work in and contribute to? More the latter, for sure. I It, it surprises me continuously how much the industry has scaled. I, you know, anecdote here... There's a performance of video game music called Video Games Live that mm -hmm. Tommy Tallarico organized. And at one point, uh, I took my wife to go see the you know Video Games Live performance. And we were walking towards, at that point, it was Nokia Center and, and Staples. You know, names have changed since then. But mm -hmm. we, you know, we're walking towards the venue. And there were just all of these like really, you know, Los Angeles mainstream dressed for going out at night on the town. And I was looking around just astonished that all of these people were going to see video game music mm -hmm. get performed. And of course, sure enough, we're 
we turned to go see the video game live performance. Everybody else turned the other direction to go see, I don't know, it was like a Mark Anthony concert yeah. or something. And I was <laughs> like, ah, oh, yeah, we haven't quite broken through in the mainstream culture yet. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it was all the like cosplayers and and the rest who were walking with us to the, to the video game music performance. But, you know, I think we're getting close to that inflection point where games are truly mainstream culture I, mm-hmm. I do still think we're a little bit of a subculture um, yeah. but it just means there's that much more room for us to to grow i guess what to you needs to be done to, to truly hit mainstream because you know i think we're, we're pretty close when i was in high school you know which was not tremendously long ago you know i, I know it was still somewhat stigmatized to be a gamer right like i remember you know, I had like friends that were gamers and stuff like that. And we would talk about gaming, you know, sort of, you know, quietly behind closed doors, you know, but it wasn't something you weren't telling all your friends that you were a gamer, you know, whereas I feel like today in high school, especially with games like Fortnite, you know, Among Us, obviously during the pandemic, I feel like it's become so much more mainstream. So what's to you sort of has to happen to bridge that gap? Yeah, I, I think we're still somewhat uneven in terms of gender distribution like there there are games that have a very even distribution mm-hmm. which is wonderful but i think we need more of that to really hit the mainstream and and also regional distribution you know i think games have made great inroads around the world but you know there are areas for sure where games are still kind of that hardcore subculture biased rather than than mainstream and you know more and more as there are mobile games that have broad appeal, you know, as there are console games that have broad appeal, I think we're making inroads, but I feel mm-hmm. like we're not completely there yet. That's fair. I mean, I, I obviously hope it, it keeps moving in this more uh, more mainstream direction. But now going to Frost Giants, what are you actually working on at Frost Giants? I know you guys have, have put out, you know, a, quite a bit of, of media at this point, um, but for the folks who are less familiar, what is Frost Giant actually working on? Our goal at Frost Giant is to build a spiritual successor to Blizzard-style RTS games. And obviously, we're an independent company. We're not affiliated with Blizzard anymore. So Mm -hmm. we're not building in a universe that will be familiar to Blizzard players. But the gameplay style that we're building is very much inspired by the games that we worked on at Blizzard. And even the universe itself, I think, draws some influences from the universes that Blizzard's created. But, you know, we very consciously set out to make something distinct in that sense. I think Blizzard has really created an amazing world with Warcraft. Blizzard's really created an amazing universe with StarCraft. We didn't want to try to directly become an alternative in high fantasy or an alternative in science fiction. Too much risk of feeling like margarine to Blizzard's butter mm-hmm. if, uh, mm-hmm. if we did that. So we are set on a near future Earth and Earth doesn't really play a significant part as a setting. Yeah, certainly not in Warcraft and in Starcraft, Earth exists, but it's not really central to the story. So so being on Earth, I think right away is different, but also it's a mix of sci-fi and fantasy. So, you know, it's a world that incorporates elements that should feel familiar to Warcraft and Starcraft players, but it's it's completely distinctive. And interestingly, the the first non-human faction in the game 
is somewhat demonic. Uh, mm -hmm. They're not real demons. They're aliens that are sort of the source of demon myths. So there's there's even a little bit of Diablo flavor, I would say, that kind of consciously creeps into what we're doing. But again, hopefully completely distinctive from any of the Blizzard worlds and just something that feels comfortable and familiar to players who love Blizzard games. So tying back to this, like more, you know, gaming becoming more mainstream thing, right? This is something that I've thought about for many, many years and, and ran about for many, many years, just about gaming IPs sort of transcending just gaming, right? I think that's one of the big things that needs to be done to really cross over to mainstream, but also in my opinion, it's something that should have been done like many, many years ago, right? Like, yeah, to your point, you need multiple Blizzard IPs with super, super deep universes. When I asked you what Frost Giant is building, you didn't really talk about gameplay. You talked about a universe, right? So obviously there's all this lore, it's something that you've thought about deeply, but how do you think about sort of the Stormgate IP going forward? Do you see a world in which it's going to live beyond just either, you know, one game and expand into multiple games, or maybe even, you know, beyond into other, other forms of media as well? We are all about being fans ourselves, I mm -hmm. guess, like like a lot of people who, who work at Blizzard and who, who play Blizzard games. I, I think it is that sense of passion and fandom that kind of attracts us. And so we very much want to build a world that is compelling to tell different kinds of stories. In. And those could be different game genres those could be you know we've seen as you alluded some really great evolution in game universes crossing over to television and to film like there there were a lot of bad examples of yeah. that early on but <laughs> many many bad examples totally uh <laughs> now now there are finally some good examples and, and it feels like lately there are more good than bad yeah. i think the potential to do bad ones is still there for sure. But, <laughs> uh, so yeah, we, we would love to see some of that happen. And, you know, behind the scenes, there are all kinds of conversations going on to explore those possibilities. Mm -hmm. And then how do you think about, you know, so like cross media thesis was kind of popular for a little bit. And from the gate, it was like, we're going to build a game and then a movie and then a theme park and toy, you know, all this other stuff. How do you strike that right balance of, you know, focusing on the game, thinking about these other things, but not getting too distracted along the way. Yeah, one of the things that I really admired about Blizzard was that Blizzard did not approach projects from the starting point of how do we optimize for a business outcome? They really approached projects from the perspective of what would I be excited about playing? And you know, ho hopefully those two things wind up aligning. And it's not that we never talk about business outcome. Like obviously there's a PL, there is a business aspect to what we're doing, but but it's that starting point that's so important because it it really changes the way you approach building something. Like the, you know, the first lens that you're looking at this through is the lens of a fan or the lens of a, a player. And I feel that same way about, you know, if you're setting out with like the business goal of you, you hear this from time to time, I'm mm -hmm. a transmedia company, yeah. you know, the the MCU did is what I want to, you know, <laughs> yeah. think, things like this. And, and I do think starting with the business outcome rather yeah. than starting with, I, I want to build a really rich universe that I'm just 
hugely excited about. And, mm-hmm. and from that flows the ability to do things across media, but yeah, they're just different starting points, I guess. And, you know, not that it can't work. I'm sure somebody will pull that off, but for all of the consciously transmedia plays that I've seen so far, I haven't seen a lot of success yeah. flow out of that. And to be fair, I have some friends who I think are like really great storytellers and content creators who are pursuing some some ideas like yeah. that now. And, you know, I think there's a real chance of success for them, but they they do have that healthy, like, we're just, we want to build cool stuff. Like, yeah. I think that's something that in Blizzard games, you know, as a player, you've always been able to, to feel. I haven't played tons and tons of strategy Blizzard games, actually. I, I did play a decent bit of Warcraft 3, but Overwatch is actually one of my favorite games of all time. I love, like, the characters and the depth of the characters and just the story and all the other interactions. I actually have, like, watched, you know, hour-long YouTube videos just explaining, like, this is the story of Overwatch to date, you know, and stuff like that. And you can just really tell, you know, how much care they they put into those products and, and building up these universes. Yeah. And I, I mean, my fanboy is going to come out a little <laughs> bit here, but I, I was working at Blizzard when Overwatch was announced, but mm-hmm. I obviously wasn't involved in the project. Yeah. And, it, you know, so I was there in, in the hall at BlizzCon when Chris Metzen came out on stage mm-hmm. to reveal the new universe and yeah i mean seriously like tears were flowing around the room because people were so excited and they you know cinematics team they're just i i think it's probably the best piece of work they've ever done that Mm -hmm. announcement cinematic for Mm -hmm. overwatch was just so good and and again it's about you know just inspiring that kind of connection to a world that is it's so hard to to do that, like starting with a blank canvas and coming up with something that resonates that way. It's really hard. Mm -hmm. And I have so much appreciation for guys like Chris Metzen who have been able to make these compelling worlds over and over again. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, just Starcraft, Warcraft, Overwatch, he's really had a major impact on gaming for for all of us. Yeah, no, it's really incredible. I wanted to talk about RTS for a little bit in general, right? And so for folks who are like a little bit less close, RTS is a genre that, you know, many people would probably argue has been, I don't know if stagnant is the right word, right? But it's been sort of at steady state for a while, right? There's a certain number of games that have remained quite dominant and, you know, are sort of like the de facto leaders or even the de facto category at this point, you know, obviously StarCraft being one of them, which is a game that you know better than most people on the planet. But I think when most people, you know, let's take it from an investor perspective, right? I think when many investors, if they were to look at like, what are all the genres that like someone might want to disrupt, you know, I think RTS for many reasons probably wouldn't be one of the first ones that, that they would name, right? And I think more recently, the strategy genre in general the subgenre that's been getting most attention obviously is MOBA, right? Much more than than RTS. And so talk to me a little bit about RTS. Why did you choose RTS? And why do you think there's an opportunity to sort of innovate on RTS? Yeah, this is a, a deep question. And definitely the number one question that I got when I was out there mm-hmm. pitching for Astron. So I actually think MOBA is a great example of 
how a game that is actually a pretty niche core genre can break out. So, you know, if we go back and we look at Defense of the Ancients, you know, it's a Warcraft 3 mod. Certainly early on, even getting it installed was a challenge. Mm -hmm. You know, the onboarding was basically non-existent so you got to kind of have friends and you know just trial and error it's you know the community is so passionate that they're not terribly welcoming of new you know there's just there's so many reasons why the original dota was a a niche experience And, Mm -hmm. and it was great like clearly there was something magical there that did attract this passionate audience around it but you know it was not a runaway success in terms of like commercially impressive numbers mm-hmm. yet you know there were some others along the way here's a new earth whatever but when riot came out with league they took this thing that was a niche hardcore audience experience mm-hmm. and brought it to over a hundred million monthly yeah. active players it's incredible like no way would i have predicted that that was even possible right and it's hard to point to one specific thing that Riot did that led to that success, mm-hmm. but I think certainly a very polished user experience, you know, taking away the friction of well, installing, but also onboarding into the game. It, and it wasn't that polished when it first launched, but they mm-hmm. iterated, they took a lot of player feedback, and they just stayed committed to honing that over a period of years to get it to a point that it was truly excellent. I think free-to-play was an important ingredient there, taking away price as a barrier to entry. And then just the level of commitment that they as developers put into you know, community building and polish and eventually universe building. And obviously we've, going back to the transmedia discussion, yeah. seen that universe now manifests in other other ways with arcane and with like the music groups that they've spun up and anyhow i i have so much admiration for what riot did there and full disclosure like they're they're an investor Mm -hmm. in in frost giant as well but so so taking this niche thing to mainstream and and arguably like even just the heights of the success that's possible for a video game I think is really inspirational for me then looking at RTS because RTS is similarly this core passionate audience. And if we can improve the user experience enough that that core audience is comfortable inviting their friends and their significant others, and you know that, that, that virality is so important. Another great example to look at is Dark Souls to Elden Ring. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's so analogous that dark souls had this core passionate audience the games were saddled with the reputation of being punishing so mm-hmm. people were like oh yeah i've heard of dark souls but i'm not going to try it like yeah that's not my kind of game but elden ring comes out and you know that was where that core audience felt comfortable saying to their friends like this is the one you should play it's, it's open world you can kind of pick when you want to engage with bosses you can you know level before you get it. anyway there there were some important changes that FromSoft made to make Elden Ring the success that it was. But these are the examples that we're trying to learn from. Mm -hmm. Like it's a massively powerful ingredient to have, to have this passionate core audience, but you've got to combine that with improvements to approachability to really 
bring a bigger audience in. And I, I do think inherent in talking about all of this is an implication that shouldn't be overlooked or underappreciated, which is these are social experiences now. Mm-hmm. You know, R- RTS historically has been a solo experience, but you know, league part of the virality and stickiness that Riot has achieved is just stemming from the fact that it's a team game. And like every solo game that you lose, you've pretty much got nobody to blame but yourself. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you can complain about the game balance or whatever, but pretty much it feels bad because it's you that yeah. lost. But literally every team game that you lose in your head, it's your teammates' faults. Like, <laughs> you know, it's not not your fault. So so RTS as a genre in general leans quite competitive. How do you think about the balance between you know, making that sort of authentic competitive experience that RTS players are used to versus making the game accessible enough where you can actually get new users to come in? Yeah, the, the first thing I would say to that is even though the perception is that RTS leans competitive, the numbers tell a different story. Mm. Um, so it's only 25% of the audience uh, for StarCraft, at least, mm-hmm. that was playing competitively. That other oh, wow. 75% played against AI, predominantly campaign, but then when we added the co-op mode, they played that mode as well. So, But I, the competitive players are the stickiest, like mm-hmm. they stay in the game the longest, and they're also the loudest and the most engaged. So mm-hmm. like they matter a lot. They matter so much that the reputation of the game is defined by them, yeah. even though they're the minority audience. So you're right that we have to satisfy both these audiences with seemingly opposing likes. Like, you know, the competitive guys mm-hmm. like high skill ceiling. They like the fact that it's intimidating and scary. And then the mainstream, more approachable audience really, you know, they want story, they want do-overs, they want not to be constantly stressed while they're playing in the same mm-hmm. way that the competitive players do. So I think a lot of game designers would tell you that our answer to this conundrum is a bad answer, but it is the answer that we genuinely believe is the right answer. And it is simply that we provide different modes for different kinds of players. And so if you are somebody who appreciates high skill gameplay and you are inherently competitive, like go play 1v1, go play Mm -hmm. ladder. We are building a 1v1 experience that we expect to rival Blizzard RTS games. That is not the game mode that we are trying to funnel mainstream players into. That is a game mode that some players may eventually decide they want to dip their toes in the water of, Mm -hmm. but where we expect most players to spend their time, and again, already in StarCraft II, this is 75% of the audience, Mm -hmm. we expect most players to spend their time in team games against AI. And StarCraft II wasn't as team heavy, but it's the against the AI part that is critical here. And it, it feels less bad to lose against AI, but it's also more okay for you to be overpowered against AI. So yeah. like game balance isn't the same exercise for PVE player versus environment mm-hmm. as it is for player versus player. So anyhow, I you know, our I think other games try to service both audiences in one mode. And that's why I say yeah. a lot of game designers would tell you that making effectively two games, like two completely different dedicated game modes is bad, but the elegance of it is 
this was already true in StarCraft II. So we know it works. We know we can do it. And it gives you the most flexibility as a designer to tailor the mode to the audience so that the high skill competitive players don't have to feel like we're compromising their game for the new players. And, you know, the mainstream like campaign co-op players don't have to feel like they're getting forced into competitive aspects that just don't appeal to them. Yeah, that, that approach makes a lot of sense to me. Back in a separate lifetime, I used to be, I wasn't a professional, but I was a pretty competitive Halo player. So I've played with a lot of people at sort of the highest level. And obviously Halo, you know, at its peak is about as mainstream of a game as there's ever been. And so they had to strike that exact balance, right? And so, you know, they did a number of things like, you know, different game modes for different audiences. They also worked a lot with professionals to make sure that the competitive game types are tailored and that things that non-competitive players wouldn't really think about you know they actually have that input are you working with some of the like you know rts you know competitive players or pros or have you taken insights from from those folks as you're considering competitive balance at the highest level yeah balance is such a deep subject one of the more interesting learnings over the starcraft years was that the numbers behind balance matter less than the perception of balance mm -hmm. so like even if the numbers say that it's effectively perfectly balanced people mm -hmm. are still going to be unhappy if there are areas where perceptually they feel like they're at a disadvantage or they're yeah. getting pounded but anyway so I, I guess i bring that up because it is super important to get the direct feedback from players because you know their happiness is the thing that we're trying to achieve almost more important than it is to mathematically balance the mm -hmm. game behind the scenes, though that's still a useful tool and, and we build those dashboards. The RTS competitive community is you know, one of the longest standing communities mm -hmm. in games. And there is just this sense of family to it, which mm -hmm. is really cool. There there certainly are different segments, you know, like I don't know, Age of Empires, CNC, Blizzard RTS communities and even within the Blizzard games like subfragmentation, but but there is just this sense of everybody being extended family. I think mm -hmm. you know fighting game community is another example like the FGC. Yeah, there's just this amazing sense of mutual support and and cohesion that's really cool. So I I think for us coming off the the Blizzard RTS games, having made friendships and relationships with those players who are in that community like a big part of our motivation to even make this game is to keep that community together and, and give them a reason to all keep spending time together whether mm -hmm. that's online or, or in person or whatever so yeah that literally the first groups of people that we let in to do external testing on stormgate have been members of that community and they, they've really been tremendously supportive which i'm grateful for and just constructive in terms of giving us feedback so far makes sense i think the fighting game community actually is a great example as well it's a relatively smaller community but super super tight-knit i also think for you know people everyone has sort of grown up and had played either like Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat or something like that, where they're basically just like mashing buttons, they don't really know what's going on, probably thought they were decent when they were younger. But to play at the highest level, you know, you have to know things like, you know, frame data of all these different characters. There's so much stuff that you have to know. It's so incredibly deep. Are you familiar with Evo Moment 37 by any chance? 
I am not. This is super nerdy, like deep cut. I'll probably edit this out of the final okay. podcast, but just curious for your knowledge. You know, I'll come back to the, the podcast for this part. So for folks who missed that nerdy story, you know, it was like probably like 99% chance that this player was going to lose, ended up winning, crowd goes completely insane. And if you are not really familiar with what happened, you're probably like, what just happened? But for the folks in the community, it was like an amazing moment. And I wanted to tie this into, you know, I think it was great that you started talking more about the esports scene within RTS specifically. I think esports, if you look at RTS, you know, it's just, it's unique, right? It's a phenomenon, especially in, in Korea, but also in other places as well. And so could you just talk a little bit more about sort of the culture of esports specifically within RTS? Yeah, RTS has such a synergy with esports and you know history with esports that is part of its identity in a way that most other types of games but to your point maybe with the exception of fighters you know are just not as implicitly tied i i was not at blizzard for the first starcraft i joined during starcraft 2 and my boss when i joined chris sigety had had been there for the first starcraft and he Mm-hmm. told me the story of the first time that he and some other folks from Blizzard went over to Korea because they heard that there were you know, competitions for prize money happening and they mm-hmm. wanted to see it themselves. And the sense of panic that he felt seeing these Korean pro players <laughs> basically throwing stuff at the game that they <laughs> had not contemplated when they built the game when they tested the game he's like it's gonna break it's gonna fall <laughs> we're gonna look terrible like yeah. oh, this is a disaster and uh, you know of course they were just fine and, mm-hmm. and loved the game so much that it, it became a mainstream cultural phenomenon in a way that is hard i think for anyone outside korea to really appreciate i mean it's like there are grandmothers in korea who can name the StarCraft units and the StarCraft <laughs> characters because it was on primetime television, yeah. you know, these these competitions and the, the pro players were national celebrities. And it, it's really cool, but also really accidental. You know, yeah. it's not like they set out, uh, this is going to be big in Korea. You know, mm-hmm. that, that was not part of the design plan. And so when something wonderful and organic like that happens, clearly you try to embrace it. And, you know, I think Blizzard took a while to really understand how to successfully engage with esports and with that community. You know, there were lots of lessons learned along the way. And, you know, I think even going outside of RTS esports, Blizzard esports in general has been in the news recently with some of the challenges that Overwatch is Mm -hmm. facing. And, you know, as as I've had a kind of front row seat to see the evolution of Blizzard's esports program and also, you know, just to look at how Riot and Valve and you know, even Activision at large, for that matter, have approached mm-hmm. esports, I, I think everybody was so excited. This is like going back yeah. to games becoming mainstream culture, so excited that Organically, people enjoyed watching other people compete. It felt like this could overtake traditional sports and mm-hmm. professional sports. And so suddenly PLs were being built and yeah. you know, dollar signs were in people's eyes. And and 
I I remember seeing this chart where it was like esports is a column and then there's a column for all the other professional mm-hmm. sports. And I think at that point in time, you know, esports was approaching the the revenue of NHL, the, mm-hmm. you know, hockey. And and everybody's like, oh, you know, this is just the beginning. We're going to be bigger than NFL and mm-hmm. big, bigger than soccer. And anyway, you know, there, if you stop for a minute and think about it, these other sports are not fragmented. They, you know, they might have more than one league, but the sport as a whole is is one game. Esports is adding up every single game that is played competitively and putting it into one yeah. column. And that's just not a fair comparison. The, mm-hmm. the other thing you stop and think about is these other sports have been around for decades, in some cases, centuries. Mm-hmm. So far, games do not have that kind of staying power. I think Riot's done an incredible job with League, keep it, keeping it relevant for all this time. Yeah. Certainly StarCraft is another example of a game that that has had some decades. But yeah, I mean, in both cases, I think that the popularity doesn't just keep growing or, mm-hmm. or plateau and stay there. Like typically games gain popularity and then fade and get replaced by other games. It's just the the way of things. And so fragmentation, lack of longevity, to me suggests that no single game will ever reach the same heights of mm-hmm. traditional sports. And I'd love to be proven wrong. Like yeah. Obviously this, you know, this is the career I've chosen. I love games, but just logically doesn't seem like games will overtake football, let's say, or soccer on a worldwide basis. But at the same time, there is something amazing and magical about attending a live esports competition, Mm -hmm. like the energy in that room, the tension, the drama, the sense of community. I mean, it's so good. And so I love esports and I feel like esports are sort of table stakes for a new RTS. Mm -hmm. Like certainly we've been planning from the beginning to have esports around Stormgate. But I think it's important to think about esports as providing that amazing experience to fans Mm -hmm. and not as, oh, this is the next great profit center. You know, it is a great way for players to stay engaged with the game. It's a great way to discover new games. Mm -hmm. It's a great way to build community. And those things all matter. But that's very different from going out there and selling franchise teams for 20 to 30 million dollars that are you know unlikely to ever recoup that now you've got a bunch of team owners out there who have been burned by esports mm-hmm. and are unlikely to ever make that kind of investment in this space again like that's a bad outcome and i i do believe that that outcome was foreseeable but you know as a public company you know there is a responsibility to try to maximize mm-hmm. for near-term revenue. And so the temptation exists to make decisions like that. Yeah, I think Overwatch specifically is going to be looked upon, you know, in the future as just like a really interesting case study. Like what they were trying to do in theory, I think in some ways made a lot of sense. At least it was attractive. It was an attractive story. You could sell investors. You know, I started out my career investing in publicly traded stocks. Activision Blizzard is one of the ones that I looked at for a while and ultimately ended up investing in. And I remember around the time of esports really getting hyped, you know, I looked at those exact sorts of tables that you talked about. It was like, 
esports have this many viewers, traditional sports have these many viewers. All you have to do is, you know, decrease the monetization gap and then you have a massive industry. That was like what everyone was thinking at the time. So you can see why, you know, people invested all these dollars into it. Another theory I've heard about Overwatch specifically is that Overwatch is a very, very difficult game to watch. If you don't know what's going on and you're just like watching it, it's like really, really disorienting. I think even, you know, I've actually played Overwatch quite a bit. And I think even for me as someone who's played it a lot, there are definitely moments where there's just like a lot of stuff happening on the screen. And if you're not familiar with it, it's it's really tough. But with that said, I do think it's definitely possible it was doomed to fail <laughs> initially, which is unfortunate because Overwatch is a game that I just really, really love. I think another great point that you brought up too, and I, I think this is more consensus now, but there's definitely been a shift, is that esports now I think is increasingly being viewed as more of a marketing vehicle and to you know build awareness and affinity for your brand more than it is as a business. Obviously, just a few years ago, that was not the case. People thought esports could be a massive, massive business. You know, maybe it still could be. But as of now, that doesn't really look like where the industry is going. But I just wanted to shift gears, actually, because there's something I wanted to ask you about. I feel like you are quite well positioned to answer this question. And so in VC investing, in gaming specifically, there was a period of time where gaming was really, really taking off, you know, especially during the pandemic. Gaming accelerated. There were a lot more gamers. You know, Fortnite was really, really large. Gaming was becoming more mainstream. And so there was a lot of excitement around gaming, a lot more investment dollars flowed into the space. And I think there were a lot of VCs that were investing in really strong teams on paper who had done really impressive things in the past. And this led to companies raising you know, pretty significant rounds and getting pretty full valuations, even at relatively earlier stages. Some of these have worked out, but some of these less so. And I think that has led to a little bit of discouragement and maybe a little bit of cold water in this investing thesis specifically. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. This is a deep subject. I, I would say my perceptions may be slightly different than yours and, and I'll, mm -hmm. I'll describe my, my sure. perception for whatever it's worth. I, I think there was a moment where growth in games as a sector combined with, as funny as it sounds, just like personal enthusiasm on the part of a group of investors mm -hmm. for playing games, mm -hmm. you know, it attracted investment in the sector. And I, I think there's an institutional argument to be made that, sure. you know, the kind of growth that's happening means that having some exposure to the sector, not just through public companies, but mm -hmm. also through emerging companies makes sense and is mm -hmm. smart. Like as, as part of your portfolio, I can see why an institutional investor might want that. Mm -hmm. It is a hit driven space. And, you know, that kept investors away for a long time, but I think there was kind of a realization that, well, actually portfolio investing is a hit driven thing anyway. Mm -hmm. So as long as it is a portfolio play, then so what? Like yeah. that's just the way portfolios work. But, you know, I think what happened was everybody was excited about making seed investment because it's relatively speaking, not a lot of dollars mm -hmm. and the return on those dollars for a hit is so attractive yeah. that it just feels very good. And, and so there was this shotgun of seed investments mm -hmm. and to be fair, like Frost Giant and I benefited from this. So <laughs> sure. great, but, but there was no sort of conscious effort around 
setting up the ecosystem to then support the subsequent rounds mm -hmm. that are necessary to deliver the game. If mm -hmm. everybody is doing seed, now when these companies have a prototype and it's time for them to raise 10, 20, 30 million dollars to do the next round to, you know, move the game to whatever beta or possibly even launch it's a much shorter list of companies that are interested in doing that because mm -hmm. it's a bigger check. The return on those dollars, even if the company is successful, is lower. Mm -hmm. and, and even just because it's a bigger check, like some of these funds just aren't big enough to write checks like that. You know, yeah. at this point, you're now in a tier where you've got to deal with kind of a generalist, you know, traditional mm -hmm. financial VC or a strategic. And so a lot of studios have had trouble raising the next round. And it, mm -hmm. it didn't help that the macro environment shifted. But, right. but even without that, like this, this was an inherent problem. Meanwhile, the cost to make games is going up. You know, inflation is happening at pretty scary rates mm -hmm. in, in the US and other parts of the world. And so where we set out and it felt kind of feasible that we could raise a quote unquote triple A budget. Mm -hmm. You know, now AAA games are typically north of 100 million, in some cases, multiple hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars. And so you've got a bunch of developers who are used to AAA development scale who only have a budget to do AA or single A. And so there's that inherent problem as well. I think that the thing I do agree with you in, in your take that you put out at the beginning there haven't been outcomes to really validate that venture-backed game development can work. And all of these challenges that I just talked about feed into that. And, and to be fair, I think on the mobile side, there, there have been some great outcomes, yeah. And but, but I kind of think of mobile as its own space. Yeah. So PC console, which is the space that I'm in, it, it's hard to point to the example of what good looks like. You know, Riot was a benchmark investment, so arguably they're an example of what good looks like, but, you know, they're exit to 10 cents that dollar amount hasn't been publicly disclosed but mm -hmm. you know it, it happened in a different era so yeah. I, i'm not even sure that exit was the kind of exit that vcs today would be right. excited about you know phoenix labs had an exit and then interestingly kind of unexited uh, mm -hmm. but with garena i think it was okay but again like not the multiple on return that that a lot of these vcs are looking for and then you've just got a bunch of projects like Spellbreak or Splitgate, you know, that had some really positive aspects to them, but at the same time, again, you know, didn't necessarily achieve, I think, what investors would ideally like to see as an outcome. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we're all rooting for Singularity 6. I think yeah. probably is going to be a great game. You know, I think Wonderstorm has a release coming up. You know, there are some others at Theorycraft announced yeah. recently, like th there are some teams who personally I'm really excited yeah. about, and I, I think they do have a chance to, to knock it out of the park, but at its heart, it does come back to like, this is a hit driven business. Mm -hmm. As soon as a really big hit happens that was venture backed, suddenly everybody's going to be like, yay, it works. It's exactly. validated. And every time somebody has something that doesn't achieve the outcome that was desired or outright shuts down, which is happening right now, that makes everybody colder. And then the last thing I would say, and I'm partially poking fun, but it's true. There is this something shiny phenomenon with VC yeah. and 
you know, for a minute, VR was something mm-hmm. shiny. For a minute, esports was something shiny. For a minute, Web3 was something yeah. shiny. Now it's generative AI. Yeah. Not saying that all of those things don't have some opportunities, mm-hmm. but often the perception of opportunity gets overblown and it, it it distracts from like these core businesses like the games business that does have solid fundamentals and that will at least in a portfolio sense, produce some successes over time. I think those are are great points. I am really curious to see as you are, what happens with with Palea. I think that's like one of the next big ones to watch. Also, Theorycraft game, I think is another interesting one to watch. But obviously, from the point of a gamer, I'm hoping that many of these you succeed, but it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward. Did this dynamic influence your decision at all to go to a strategic for your last round? I wish I could take credit for Frost Giants closing its last round mm-hmm. with a strategic. They they came to us. And okay. so really, you know, we, we did go out and explore what the market might support at that point. But for those who are listening who don't know, is Kakao Games a Korean strategic who led Frost Giants A round. They've been wonderful to work with. It does kind of speak to the point I made that for these subsequent rounds, often strategics are where developers turn. Strategics are set up to fund games to begin with. The strategics who have achieved any kind of scale can write the kinds of checks that we need. And there are potentially other synergies, whether it's regional distribution deals or marketing support or whatever. The the downside, obviously, is that every strategic deal in some ways narrows optionality around exit. Mm -hmm. And we've tried to be very cautious in in how we approach that. And I did mention we also have Riot on the cap table. They they really behave like a neutral from an investment perspective. You know, they're not publishing us, they're not, there there are no strings associated. And they've also been tremendously supportive and and wonderful to deal with. I I do think a lot of venture-backed companies that took seed from a traditional game fund will wind up going the strategic route in a later round. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. I could definitely see it playing out that way. You know, I think in line with your point earlier about how for a while, due to the hit-driven nature of games, a lot of VCs were avoiding investing in these like AAA types of PC and console games. And, you know, basically I think the thinking was this is an opportunity for a publisher, not for a VC. I could definitely see at least some folks going back in, in that direction. But it would be interesting to see how how that plays out. I think another thesis that I've heard about this is in recent years, you know, there have been, so you, you brought up 1047 with Splitgate. You know, I think there have been some games like that, that have innovated on a, an existing play pattern or created a brand new play pattern. Knockout City is one that comes to mind for me. I absolutely loved that game. And, you know, Multiverse is, is an example of a game that innovated and it had, it was a huge hit out the gate, but then declined relatively rapidly. I think some folks believe that as the gaming industry has matured more, it's a little bit more difficult to sort of disrupt with some of these really innovative play patterns and also sustain, right? I think, you know, obviously every year there's a new Call of Duty release, you know, Fortnite remains strong. There's a lot of incumbents that remain really, really strong. 
And a lot of these new games have been, at least in recent years, more flashes in the pan. Do you think that these innovative play patterns have staying power in the gaming industry today still? Or do you think this is sort of just a paradigm shift where it's going to be more quick hits that aren't able to sustain as well? I do think new play patterns that disrupt can sustain. I think it is a different thing to disrupt than to sustain. And and there are different skills involved. Going back to 1047, who I think are a great company, very smart and talented group of developers, I think they learned a tremendous amount from their journey to getting Splitgate to the successful moment that it had. Yeah. And I think they will apply all of that with the addition of tremendous thought around sustaining for whatever they do next. And I, I haven't talked to Ian about what he's doing next, but I, I really... Like, I think they're an example of a team that has the dry powder to execute on something amazing. Yeah. So I'm excited to see what comes out of them next. But yeah, I, I mean, you look at all of these examples of, I don't know, you know, Valheim, The Rising, mm-hmm. Among Us. I, I mean, just so many games that have have been disruptive. And, you know, I think the opportunity exists for greater sustaining greater you know long-term engagement around these things all of those developers with what they do next i'm sure will be focused on that but it is it's a different problem to solve i guess so you mentioned generative ai before as you know the shiny thing of the moment yeah i definitely agree with you not just in gaming vc but in vc in general you know it's truly incredible how rapidly dollars have flown from Web3 investments to AI investments. Um, And that's just like the hottest thing out there right now. So I have to ask you, you know, an AI question, of course, not about generative, but just AI in general, right? AI is a thing that did exist before a year ago. But going back to 2019, a team at Google actually demonstrated AI that could compete with some top RTS players. I believe it was in StarCraft, actually. Obviously, that was four years ago. A lot of things have changed. I think... Recently, you know, online poker is one area, I think, in which the development of AI is actually potentially an existential threat in some ways. We don't have to get too deep into that. But also chess and some other areas where folks are playing online and cheating could potentially be involved, right? If you're able to use one of these things to assist you live. So I'm just curious, is this something that you've thought about? Have you thought about how it might impact the strategy or RTS genre just in general, especially at like the highest, most competitive levels? I was fortunate to have been able to get to know the DeepMind team, the Google team that was working on AlphaStar, which was their project to create human or superhuman level AI play Mm -hmm. in StarCraft. And it is such an interesting difference that AI development, you know, reinforcement learning, machine learning, unlike traditional software development where, mm-hmm. you know, we, we essentially write code, we write an algorithm. And when there are problems with the output, we can comb through what we wrote and change some lines and, and you know, correct it mm-hmm. and iterate until we, we get the outcome that we want. 
with reinforcement learning, machine learning, the way that they get a different outcome isn't by going in and changing some lines in the AI algorithm. To be fair, they, they are changing lines of code. So I'm not saying they're not changing lines of code, but, but really what they're doing is rolling back to a prior state mm -hmm. and giving it new inputs, training it differently mm -hmm. to try to produce a different outcome. Because a human looking at this, you know, weighted set of neurons yeah. effectively, like the complexity there, it's it's not the same as just looking at code and, and mm -hmm. debugging code. And and I say this because when you give it a sufficiently complex problem, like let's say self-driving, I've got a buddy with a Tesla who you know, has been telling me that it's going to be fully autonomous in a couple of months for years now. Every time <laughs> I get in and he shows me the latest full self-driving beta, it tries to kill us at some point during mm -hmm. the drive. I, I mean, that's an example of a sufficiently complex problem. StarCraft, as it turns out, was sufficiently complex, even though in an ambush scenario where the AI plays a human who hasn't had an opportunity to train against it, it can beat the best player in the world. Mm. The way humans play against other humans is they play in tournaments, they experience the other, they learn mm -hmm. how to. So a player who's not the best player in the world can consistently beat Alpha Star oh, wow. given the opportunity to train against it. it. You know, I think Alpha Go, which was the success prior mm -hmm. to alpha starcraft that game has you always have perfect knowledge of yeah. the state of the board it's turn-based so it operates a lot so like it's even though there is a lot of mathematical complexity mm -hmm. to it in other ways it, it is less complex than a game like starcraft so i say this because it, there's a lot of talk that you know game developers are going to go away and mm -hmm. that uh, you'll just give an AI a prompt and out will pop the next <laughs> great game. And I, you know, I think AI can absolutely accelerate what we're doing and in ways that let us focus our brains on problems that produce more value to players. So I'm not afraid of AI. I'm not lamenting the emergence yeah. of AI. I'm excited about it. I think it's great. I don't think it's going to replace us anytime mm -hmm. soon. You know, maybe advancements will happen that I'm you know, just too, too close to it to see, but, it, you know, right now it is too early to have really meaningful impact on how we build games. And mm -hmm. I think year on year, things will improve to the point that it, it does have meaningful impact. But right now, everybody I talk to is experimenting and, mm -hmm. and we are too, and, and you can kind of cobble things together to get some time savings, but it's, not producing production quality assets. Yeah. It's janky. There are copyright and legal issues to navigate. Like it is such early days right now that I, I think it's going to take some time to really mature. I do think unlike Web3, which I'm on the record as being highly skeptical of Web3's value for games, mm -hmm. I, I do think AI will have value for games. I'm, I'm more of a believer in that long-term outcome, but I don't like... It is not mature right now. Yeah. We would like to use it more than we are. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. Even if you look backwards the past few months, there seem to be pretty significant improvements. They're obviously not perfect. So just looking forward, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. But I have heard a lot of folks, especially on the game development side, who think there's more 
real stuff here than there was with Web3. So definitely exciting. As it relates specifically to RTS, because I did, mm -hmm. didn't answer that part of your question. One of the really cool things about RTS players is on the competitive side, mm -hmm. they are constantly trying to self-improve. And some similarities with the chess audience, like chess.com yeah. is a great yeah. example of people who you know subscribe to services that enable them to get better at chess, to become yeah. better chess players. So you know, I, I can imagine some really great AI tools to help level up humans. You know, you talked about applications for cheating in games, but mm -hmm. also applications to self better and yeah. to improve our own skills. So I, I'm really excited about that. Just in general, like if, if we could figure out how to measure how much fun somebody's having in a mm -hmm. game, like what is that? Is it heart rate? Is it, I don't know, you know, neurochemicals yeah. that are being like, what, how, how do you measure how much fun somebody's having? But if we could, you know, theoretically you could use machine learning to optimize for fun. Like, wow, wouldn't that be cool? Could mm -hmm. we have some cool breakthroughs there? But that's so, I don't know, we're probably in brain computer interfaces <laughs> by the time that happens. So yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. But to to wrap things up, you know, you've been in the gaming industry for quite some time. You've had a lot of success, but obviously there's a lot more that you're still working towards given you are building this, this great company. So going forward, what exactly do you want to accomplish so either personally or professionally in the gaming industry? And what do you want your overall impact to be? Ames has such a great goal, I think, as an industry. Like our literally our job is to make people happy, to bring joy to people. You know, the the yardstick of success is have have we done that? How many people have we reached? You know, how how enduring was that happiness that we brought? I've been involved in some games that people did enjoy and, and that mm -hmm. feels good. Games are very much a team effort. So it's not like I deserve the credit for that specifically, but mm -hmm. as being part of that team, that feels good. So I hope to do more of that. I hope for that enjoyment to be enduring. And yeah, I think as entrepreneurs building organizations, that same desire to have positive impact on the teams that we build and the people we work with is is very much a goal for me. And yeah, I think to do original work and to innovate in a way that helps advance this industry would would be something that would feel good. And so very much even on an individual level, just mm -hmm. trying to remember to enjoy the journey myself, because mm -hmm. I think we all get caught up in uh, the stresses and the deadlines and the next objective. But yeah, those are my aspirations anyway. Awesome. I think that's great. I'll definitely be rooting for you and I'll make sure to play Stormgate when it ultimately drops. Oh yeah, that's one last thing. Have you announced when the game's actually going to drop? We have just started external testing uh, okay. in July and starting to expand it out now. We have some more races to finish building and mm -hmm. some more game modes to finish building. I think the soonest the game could appear would be sometime you know, later in the year, next year. Mm -hmm. But it really just depends on the, the feedback that we get and our, our progress as we continue to, to work on the game. We don't have a specific release date in mind right now.
Awesome. Well, something to look forward to, hopefully for next year. But I just want to say thanks for, for joining me. I think this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. And yeah, definitely great questions.